everybody. It is great to be here one more time today. And my name is Gary Fowler. I'm the CEO, President, and Founder of GSD Get Shit Done Venture Studios, Premier AI and Quantum Venture Studio, located in the heart of Silicon Valley. I'm a 17-time serial entrepreneur with several unicorns under the belt. I was on the, on the original management team of Click Software, which was sold to Salesforce for $1.35 billion, and also EBIT.ai, an AI agent type company. We believe that intellectual capacity is evenly spread around the world, but opportunities are not. With that, I'd like to introduce my incredible guest. Joe Millam is a recognized expert in securities analysis, valuation, portfolio design and management, venture and angel investing, and oddly enough, the psychology of wealth. Oh, that's interesting, isn't it? He ran his own multifamily office for 20 years and is now applying his almost 40 years of investing experience to address the inefficiencies of how we fund innovation. At AngioSpan, he's addressing the chronic information gap typical with early stage companies by delivering the best in class investor relations. Now rolling out the legacy funds division of AngioSpan to address the chronic and growing funding gap across the US by delivering the first institutionally rigorous solution for allocating capital to the venture asset class, regardless of the thesis, the investment thesis. So with that, I'd like to bring Joe on. Hey, Joe, how are you doing today? I'm good. Good morning to you. Yeah, good morning to you. So tell me a little bit about it. So you were in, uh, you went to school in Chico, California right. State University. Now, you got out and, and you became a broker with EF Hutton Investment. How do you go from going from EF Hutton as a stockbroker, and you were there, what, five years, to going to uh, Angel Legacy, a web-based database. How does it go from one to the other? <laughs> well, I, I, I had a knack for the public markets in college. I um, um, I don't know how to explain it other than I just had game, and, and I had to open up a brokerage account and at Payne Weber. I'll never forget it. And they thought I was an annoying young college student that was just trying to waste their time and after the first few stocks just really performed, they I'd walk in and use their Quotron and they would uh, come up and say, hey, what are you looking at? Because they they realized I, I knew what I was talking about. I probably could have run a hedge fund if I knew what a hedge fund was in college. I had people giving me money and the like. And so out of college, I, I, I thought the brokerage industry was where I wanted to go. I was researching it while I was in college and um, had choices to join a number of firms and Hutton at the time had the best reputation. And uh, moved uh, to um, the wine country of Northern California in Santa Rosa um, with my newly minted bride, college sweetheart, and we set up shop in Santa Rosa. And, and my first finance professor, who I was kind of his star student, uh, he left teaching and went to EF Hutton. So he, he was able to drag me into Hutton. But I, I learned that was more of a sales business than it really was a financial analysis and investment industry. And, uh, the the, the commission-driven model is just not for me. And I had the good fortune to get invited in to join what was recognized as the boutique multifamily office in the Bay Area. A man who founded it in 1970, he um, he left, got out of Stanford's business school in the early 60s and, and in the mid 60s, he went in the RAA industry in San Francisco and worked for the two firms there, the two private investment firms, and then started his own shop in 70. Grew it up and, and the reputation, the assets, and, and then the bank in Liechtenstein came calling in the late 80s. They wanted to establish a foothold in Silicon Valley as they were expanding their wealth management across the United States. So they bought his firm in 88. I joined in 90. And then um, um, he just invited me in. We were, we were um, 
we were both members of the same duck hunting club in the East Bay, Grizzly Island area of the, the Bay Area. And uh, that's, I was in my 20s and he was in his mid 50s. But for whatever reason, I, I, I attracted his attention enough for him to invite me into this boutique firm. And our, our relationship blossomed. I had, I had, I got in and really streamlined their back office operations. I had some computer chops in college and did some, what they, we now call FinTech programming in college and wrote some financial programs and stuff. And so I automated their, their back office and streamlined their research process, their new accounts opening their trading systems and stuff. And, and, uh, and also I, I had good bedside manner with clients. So he brought me in very quickly and some of the key clients and as his number two guy, and I became his, 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 his right-hand guy and engendered his confidence and, and uh, our colleagues. Um, and then when he um, got diagnosed with lung cancer, he said, hey, Joe, you run the firm till I get back um, from his cancer treatment. And he never came back. He died of cancer Christmas day of 92. Was that legacy capital management? No, it was the predecessor firm. Yeah, I see. Yeah, called BIL Trainer Wortham originally, BIL meaning bank in Liechtenstein. Mm -hmm. um, and so I bought the firm back from the bank in 93 and renamed it Legacy Capital Management. And so, um, and didn't keep all the clients, kept, uh, kept a good uh, good cluster of them and just continued to manage it there at 3000 Sand Hill Road. And um, a year later, the um, this little thing called the internet commercializes and all hell breaks loose in venture capital and, and angel investing. And I just had a front row seat. I mean, I managed Larry Sincini's personal money, a couple of partners at Sequoia Capital. Um, because these were the clients that I just was lucky to step into because of who Denny was and, and, and who he already had as clients. And, but I just got in the middle of this whole modern era of angel and venture investing from a front row seat. And we did our own securities analysis. Um, we built custom portfolios for wealthy people. You know, we watched individual securities, stocks and bonds. And so I, as I got active in the angel investing world, um, I, had a, I saw how really pedestrian process was that people did their purported due diligence before they invested in stocks. And I was the, the band of angels. Uh, many of your viewers may be familiar with that was founded in my office there at 3000 Sand Hill by my subtenant, Hans Severs. At the Angel Capital Association, the Angel of the Year Award is always awarded. The, it's called the Hans Severs Award because uh, he was the founder of the band of angels. Well, he was my subtenant. He was dating one of our clients and he wanted to come down and see how this young Turk was managing his girlfriend's money and, and had such a good track record. And, um, that's how he, he evolved and, and got in our orbit. And then the, formed the Band of Angels. I was an early member. And again, and plus some other angel groups that sprung up in, in the mid-90s. And, uh, and just had this firsthand observation of, of just, again, the lack of real institutional rigor and process. It's all about the deal. It's all about who else is in the deal and the optics of the deal. And you know, I never had to meet with the managements of Cisco and Intel and IBM when, when we were analyzing them. I mean, I had access to good data and I knew what I was looking for and uh, within the context of our style of investing. And so I just contrasted this sort of pitch process with the investment process of the public markets and um, uh, decided to launch a firm in, in 2000. That's the predecessor to what we're doing now. Hired a CEO to run it, raised a bunch of money, had partnerships with the Draper Fisher Jurvetson network of funds that were springing up. They had that hub and spoke model back then. Um, but it was way too sophisticated, which I'm happy to get into uh, or provide your viewers with details on it. But it was the first cap table management tool way before Carta. This is 2000. Wow. A transfer agency, a digital transfer agency, which is all it is, tracking your shareholders. 
We were the third funding portal on the internet behind garage.com and off-road capital. Now there's thousands of all the crowdfunding sites and the like. Um, we we're the first reporting platform uh, like Gust and some of the others have sprung up. Um, and we we're the first investor relations. So you could get good access to information on the individual startups to inform your research and thus your decision-making. That was all one company. And it was just, we we're boiling the ocean. We we're trying to build out an institutional back office capability for the private markets. And it was just way too sophisticated and over everybody's heads. And 9-11 just put a stake in the heart of it anyway, because of risk appetites declined and, and the markets and the world's changed. So we shut it down in 03. How does that happen, Joe? You know, you look at it because we got a lot of stuff going on right now. When you look at it, you were right in the side of it. What happens, you know, with with uh, when 2000, in March of 2000, when the market, the bubble burst, what was it like? I mean, you were right there living it. How was it? What was it like? How does it feel? Well, it's interesting. We were, um, I had moved the firm from the Bay Area up to the Sacramento area, Granite Bay, if, if uh, many of your viewers know it, up there by Folsom Lake. That's where I grew up. And um, to get out of the Bay Area, my, my then wife, my college sweetheart, um, we, she never liked the Bay Area. And we moved up to be closer to family. And um, uh, that move was fortuitous because it got me out of the echo chamber of the bubble. And we managed money in a very disciplined way. It was a GARP style, growth at a reasonable price, sort of large cap core was the style box. And we had external data vendors that would define our research, not Wall Street analysts, not the headlines, not CNBC. And uh, we were very disciplined about it. We'd buy low and sell high and um, with very disciplined structures around that. And if we didn't have anything to buy with the cash proceeds, we'd let cash pile up. Well, by Q1 of 99, our clients' portfolios were 65% cash because it was not hard to know. The market was expensive, but nobody wanted to get off the gravy train. Everybody was doing it. There was a bubble in the public markets. And we just didn't play by that those rules. And so we were sitting there in cash um, in March of 99, about 65% cash. Uh, and then I launched Angel's Legacy, the predecessor company, in April of 2000. Because we're sitting there earning 5% of our money markets, and then the market starts crashing, and the clients thought we were brilliant as market timers. And we weren't market timers. We just had discipline in defining low and, and selling high. We used both fundamental analytics and tools and data sources, external data sources. But we also used technical analytics, which was somewhat unique back then, to combine both fundamental analysis and technical analysis. As we learned in the mid-'90s, you could buy low, but as that irrational exuberance started unfolding, as Greenspan spoke to, you know, what's cheap could get cheaper and what's expensive could get more expensive. Yeah. And we were leaving, we were leaving alpha on the table. Uh, we were just a fundamental manager using fundamental data. And uh, we started incorporating some technical analytics to refine our timing of our buys and sells. So we didn't leave so much alpha on the table by being too early on the buys or the sells. And that it was the technical analytics that, that really fueled. We knew the market, our holdings were expensive, but we were waiting for them to roll over in price in a meaningful enough threshold that our technical indicators would say to sell. And that's how we ended up selling so much, but couldn't find anything to buy. And so cash just piled up. Yeah. So to answer your question, it was, it was nuts. Uh, I saw a lot of people I respected in the money management world that I, in many ways, tried to emulate, um, blow up. They lost their way. They got caught up in the bubble. Dodging Cox and Sanford Bernstein and some other folks that were local money managers that I knew very well in the Bay Area that were really thoughtful investors but they didn't want to miss out on the party. And it was a real lesson. And again, and going back to the psychology, 
even the most rigorous discipline organizations still are subject to greed and fear, fear of missing out. Mm-hmm. And that neither of those ever defined my motivations. I would be happy to turn big clients away if they were not people that I wanted to work hard for. Um, we lost a couple of clients when we were, our cash levels got so high saying, oh, your disciplines are old school. It's different this time. I can't, we actually heard that from a client. It's different this time. Value doesn't matter. We heard all that. And uh, that same client, to his credit, came back to us. He split his money between us and Goldman Sachs and um, fired us because we we're sitting in so much cash and Goldman was playing the FOMO game. And then uh, so he put his $10 million that he gave us back to Goldman and then brought it all back to us after Goldman blew up um, in the early aughts. And uh, again, most people won't do that. If they made a stupid decision like that, they won't go back to where they made that stupid decision. They'll go find somebody else. But to his credit, he came back to us and became a very good client and, and really respected our disciplines because that's what he paid for was our objectivity and disciplines. And that's all relevant because of what we're doing now in the venture markets. We've seen, I've lived through now the third bubble of venture investing. And um, you see the same behavior yeah. in the venture markets. Human, human beings don't change their spots. It's just a new crop of people practicing bad behavior. Oh, That's I, remember, I remember, I'll never forget this. I remember during the um, internet bubble, there was a guy that I met that I'm sure you know, but uh, he had made um, a $300 million. His stock portfolio was up $300 million, <laughs> internet company. And he's telling me, you know, um, I said, why don't you sell some? He says, because Gary, I want to be a billionaire. <laughs> I'm going like, but I said, I said, like, you had nothing. Yeah. And you've got the CRM company. You had nothing. Why don't you take like 150 million off the table? Yeah. Just put it. He said, no, no, no. In fact, I'm going to do something else. I said, what's that? He said, I'm using my, um, what was it using his stock as security? Uh, margin. Yeah. And he bought a house and, um, artwork and around the world trip for, you know, was it his wife himself and his two kids and like some crazy ass trip. And he did it while the market tanked. And then what happened is they called his loan uh, and he got caught up. He went from having 300 million to having nothing. You know? Nothing. Well, I, another story, he didn't go to nothing, but it was for all intents and purposes, nothing. And I won't tell you his name, but he was the CEO of a company. Cisco made a strategic investment in, and um, he, uh, the the folks inside Cisco were telling uh, John Chambers to buy the company because somebody else will, because they went public. You know, it was one of strategic venture investments in a private company, and then it went public, and the founder, no kids, was worth a billion something during this bubble, and then Lucent came in and bought him, and of course he's knows how to pick stocks because he's a tech technology guy that made a lot of money. So he used his Lucent stock, uncollared, on margin, and at one time became the second largest creator of trading commissions for a banker's trust behind Paul Allen. Really? All on margin. Oh, my God. And he lost over a billion dollars in six months. Wow. Yeah. What happened to him? He's now still working. I did look him up. I won't tell you his name, but he is still working, and he's in his 70s. Oh my God! Well, it's, I mean, it happens, you know. It, one of the I managed money for one of the board members of of his public company, uh, who was at Cisco, and um, 
and our we were very good and we made it look easy i don't want to it's not bragging it i look back in reflection and and uh, you know when you're in the middle of it it's it's just a day-to-day fight to manage money and do all the research and do what we did but we really did make it look easy and, and we delivered phenomenal results consistently from march of 96 through march of 09 our firm's track record was the top performing large cap fund manager in the united states based on absolute risk adjusted returns based on two independent databases that track money managers the wilshire database and the back then was called PSN Efron, and now it's been absorbed by some other big data database company. Um, these are Morningstar equivalents, but for money managers. And um, and we did it by spending about an hour and a half a week doing all of our research and trading. That's it. Three wow. people on the team, because we had an, a, a disciplined process. That and we, as I said, the analogy I always gave is it's like pilots of an airplane. We flew off our instruments. We didn't look out the window. We didn't trust our own emotional reactions to what we were observing. We flew by our instruments, our data, and what it was telling us. And we had confidence in that. And um, and it works. You don't have to spend a lot of time. We had an, I cleaned, I audit, after I took over the firm, I automated our back office, so our trading systems were absolutely world-class. We had um, the, the due diligence teams of both Merrill Lynch and Credit Suisse come through to look at our back office, because given our track records, to put us on their RAP program so they could their brokers could refer us to their private clients. And, and they said, why aren't you a huge money manager? This is the best back office I've ever seen. Yep. I said, I'm just, I don't have a sales force. I just would rather just focus on managing our existing clients' money and let clients come through referrals. And um, so that process orientation is what's so critical. And that's what's lacking in so many people, again, in the public markets. That's why you see, you know, the erratic behavior of, of the active management. It's not just the um, um, the intelligence of their analysts or, or what have you. It's because they didn't build a process to guard against the emotional impact of the people operating the firm. Well, I mean, the thing is, it happens. I mean, th- this emotions like Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic and all that. It's crazy, right? It's Shakespearean and it plays out. All the time, it's All you can time. see I mean, it coming. That's the psychology of wealth you referenced earlier. I've studied it since college, mm-hmm. and um, it's just you can see it play out time and time and time again. Um, I, and it's I don't care what people say, say. They're I'm an impact investor, or I'm a I'm a conservative investor. I watch their behavior and their reactions to certain circumstances, and I can tell you exactly who they are, and how they're likely to react to the next situation. And it's all about behavior. It's not about what you say, it's what you do. Yeah, and, right, and so what happens? So when the uh, financial bubble, how did that affect it back 2007, 2008? What happened? Well, one of the reasons we were the number one firm all the way through that bubble as well is because in 08, you know, Q1 of 07, our cash levels start going up again, buy low, sell high. Even though the market wasn't in such a bubble state from a PE multiple, it was when you looked at the underlying economics of the economy. The economy by then had become financialized. You know, General Electric is the poster child, but Ford, GE, most industrial firms made more money off their financial subsidiaries than they did off selling whatever their products were that they were known for. So GE credit was, uh, GE financial services was their principal revenue generator. They were a financial firm with an industrial subsidiary, if you looked at their financials. But that was true across the board. I, As I said, I managed money for this gentleman, a senior. He was number two behind John Chambers at Cisco. And Cisco, by then, was making more money off leasing routers than they were selling routers. Because wow. they arbitraged the cost of money that they could get versus the lease rates. Yeah. And that was greater margin than, than the margins they got on selling the, um, 
selling the routers themselves. So it was, you could see that the data vendor we subscribed to, it was a firm out of Chicago. They were an independent data vendor for a number of years called Holt. And then in 02, they were bought by Credit Suisse. Now it's a division of Credit Suisse called Credit Suisse Holt. And I'm told by the folks that are still there that I'm still in touch with it, that UBS is going to retain it. But I, when I took over the we started using Holt in 91, um, I, when I was just a junior guy before my boss died. And then when I took over the company, I designed our research process around Holt and made a, a guess, but it wasn't a hard guess, that they would become recognized as a highly sophisticated, if not the most sophisticated way to do fundamental analysis. That was the one conjecture I made because it was early. And that proved to be the case. Their algorithmic way to do fundamental analysis called CFROI, cash flow return on investment, is now taught as part of the CFA curriculum. It is recognized now formally by outside parties. But S&P recognized, their barons recognized it when they do their annual review of the S&P 500, it was always done through a whole filter. Well, when they sold a Credit Suisse for $100 million in 02, the president hired me to manage his money. I was the best in the world at it. So I used data, but I used it right. It wasn't perfect but I knew what its strengths were and I stuck to its strengths and I played Moneyball. And with technical analytics to refine our timing of entry and exits, we just played Moneyball. That's why we had to spend so little time actually doing the work. Well, I mean, in 2007, 2008, how was that different than- Well, our cash flow started going up in 2000, Q1 of 07, by Q, Q1 of 08, we were 60% cash. And, um, and then market crashes in the fall of 08. Now, what was different, and it's why I left the industry, is because we had a lot of inside access to senior folks at Goldman and, and the internal communications of how they were all blown. They were all bankrupt. And their prop trading desks, their internal hedge funds that were trading their, their balance sheet assets of the firms, Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers and Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, um, they're all individual prop desks were doing trades on their peers. They're doing uh, pairs trades. Yeah, they were they were shorting the stock and going long the credit default swaps. And that's what triggered the magnitude of the crash that caused Lehman to go Barron's and uh, Bear Stearns and Lehman to go. And we're seeing the internal narrative. They were all bankrupt and they got bailed out and they caused the problem themselves. Wow. And um, we're sitting in cash and our work, our technical work and our fundamental work said the market had a long way to go down before we were going to spend that cash. And then the government steps in to bail out the bad actors and the ZERP and all the sort of stuff that if, if you haven't seen the, the movie Too Big to Fail, it's the movie version of uh, Andrew Sorkin's book, you should absolutely uh, watch it because they literally bail out their buddies under the auspices of saving the system. And I, I knew it was flawed policy. We needed bankruptcy. We needed the bad actors to be held accountable. You can't privatize profits and socialize losses like long-term capital. Yeah. And, 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 and. But they knew that they'd get bailed out by their buddies under the auspices of what's called the Plunge Protection Team, the president's working group. Um, and I became completely distraught. And I literally told the clients, I don't know what to do with your money. We have this discipline process that's worked through both bubbles and now the rules are changing. The Fed is conducting a massive monetary policy experiment that's never been done before, short of Japan. And- yeah, Nothing good happened there, that's for sure. Yeah, exactly. And so I actually lost all feel for the markets and all interest in the markets and quite frankly, became quite distraught. I took a couple of years of, of a bit of a mental walkabout. And then it ultimately just walked away from my own firm, didn't even sell it. People wanted to buy it, wanted me to stay around and I didn't want to stay around. I wanted out of the public markets. And so I migrated to Austin, Texas, 
where my kids had migrated to, to Texas um, in 2013. Um, like I said, I was I became of counsel for a period of time, trying to see if I could help the client stay because my number two guy who had a 15% interest in the business, he uh, he had younger kids than I did, and, and uh, he needed to stay working and and um, um, wanted to. He wasn't as distraught as I was, shall we say? And so I just literally lost all interest. And so I ultimately went up counsel for a couple of years, but most of the clients left. And so he got down to a small firm and I, um, uh, I left, moved to Austin and he ended up selling it, merging it with a, a much bigger firm. So, so let's talk about angel span. Tell us a little bit about that. I know you're, you know, you're doing, um, you've got an IR platform and services for entrepreneurs, but let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, well, it goes back to the original predecessor company, Angel Legacy. You know, and it, when I examined it, I got an active in angel investing and managed money for VCs and, and senior executives of Silicon Valley Bank back in the early 90s and a lot of those insiders. I saw the insight process, again, contrasting with how I manage money and simply stated to improve how we fund innovation. You did, I would simply want to look to the public markets. And if you understand the history of the public markets, I'm a research nerd and I love history, financial history in particular. Um, a public traded company didn't have to adhere to any gap standards. They didn't have to worry about insider trading rules. They didn't have to report 10Ks and 10Qs. And that sort of behavior is what magnified the crash of 29. And so FDR stepped in and formed the Securities and Exchange Commission to establish the first standardized reporting requirements in an act of risk management. If you actually read the 33 Act, it says in an act of risk management, they've established the first standardized reporting requirement and formed the SEC to enforce them. Well, if we're gonna fix how we fund startups, one of the biggest problems with investing in startups is getting good information on the startups, i.e. 33 Act-like standardized reporting. So AngelSpan, the first thing we built inside AngelSpan was to build the first 33 Act equivalent for reporting from startups. That's what professionally call investor relations. The IR departments of public companies are responsible with communicating and veiling that 33 act compliant information. And then Starbox obviously is layered on top of that. Um, but that's what we built first is to, so investors, stakeholders, anybody that cares about an entrepreneur's success actually can get information. Think signal versus noise ratio. Right. Startups are taught to pitch. They're taught to hype. It's what fuels bubble behavior from investors and entrepreneurs. And that's the problem. Yeah. And so proper standardized reporting, not marketing and communications, not Marcom, not just the good news, but a rigorous standardized way to communicate what's going on inside the business. How are you spending your investors money? On a, and so that's what we established. We did a lot of research. Um, the core IP that defines that standardized structure is called the Bell-Mason Diagnostic. It was partially built by Coopers and Librand mm -hmm. to establish a gap-like reporting structure for the early stages of the startup lifecycle journey because they too recognize this problem. And so the Bell-Mason Diagnostic was designed, architected, and back-tested over thousands of companies back in the late 80s by Gordon Bell, Heidi Mason, and Coopers and Librand. Gordon also wanted to create a... a um, a roadmap of how to build a startup from the ground up, a series of logic steps. Gordon Bell is the inventor of the mini computer. He's the first, he's a founder of the Computer History Museum. It, it was located in Boston. Then he ended up to Wozniak and moved it out to Mountain View. Uh, he's an iconic figure. He won the first Nobel Prize equivalent for technologists called the John Newman Award. But he moved out to Silicon Valley in the early 80s and became a, um, 
uh, an advisor mentor for a lot of startups in the early 80s. And he found these are smart people working on interesting things, but they didn't know how to build a business to monetize in a sustainable and successful way. I mean, that's right. That's the challenge, right? They don't operate the challenge to do it. And if and you haven't done it before, it's not so easy because you don't, you know, right. did the first MBA is to teach managers how to manage, not how to be entrepreneurs, right? Exactly. So he, he wanted to create a series of logic steps similar to writing lines of code in software so that by the time you write all the lines of code and you QC those lines of code along the way, by the time you've written all the lines of code, the software functions as you intend. Right. So are there a series of logic steps to build a startup? And what are they? And that's the research and the back testing they did. The Lean Startup Canvas, a lot of people recognize. Well, that was lifted out of the Bell Mason Diagnostic just around the Bell Mason milestones to find product market fit. But the Bell Mason covers all the relevant topics across the entire phase of building a startup from the from ideation all the way to cash flow positive public company rocking and rolling. Well, Gordon, um, I got I re, I found the, the Bell Mason Diagnostic back in when I launched Angel Legacy, the predecessor company. Read his book because he wrote the first book on how to start a startup. And when I decided to launch Angel Legacy as a money manager. I'd never done it, so I did my homework. Hired a CEO to run it because that's what he said you do. If you haven't run a startup, go hire somebody that has. So I did. But that's where I was introduced to it. Well, I circled back on on uh, Gordon and Heidi uh, when I launched Angel Legacy, and now Gordon's an investor in our company. That's great. So the Bell Mason. How old is Gordon, by the way? Oh, he's in his late eighties. He's yeah, he's an amazing guy, but he he's in his late eighties. He's he's fascinating. I could spend hours. The time I spent with him was just an absolute privilege. I bet. Yeah. That's, yeah. I mean, talk to so, him. Again, it's it's it, to establish a standard reporting, it has to a be rigorous. It has to be not my opinion of what's the right things to report on, or what the entrepreneur thinks, or God forbid, investors that say, "Here's the KPIs I care about," which is just oftentimes arbitrary or something they heard in an angel meeting or they read in an article as to what a relevant KPI is. So these are scientifically designed, architected, and backed up, um, and that is the structure of what we report on on behalf of the startups and. What Coopers did was they also recognized the need, if you're going to report externally, you need a way to put in somewhat of a gap accounting-like structure, the early milestones that entrepreneurs work on to build the business while they're spending friends and family money and their own bootstrap money and maybe their early seed money, while they're building basically what you'd call in accounting terms balance sheet assets and largely intangible assets. But there needs to be a way to capture that because gap doesn't even capture it properly. And that's really the majority of the activity until a startup has linearity, their financial statements, their margins are stable, their cash flow positive, you know, blah, blah, blah. So they created a scoring system as part of building out the Bell Mason Diagnostic. So we score the clients by doing their IR, producing monthly operational updates, structure around the Bell Mason, with the Bell Mason milestones as our curation relevancy filter. Mm-hmm. We also score the clients against the Bell Mason every month. And in doing so, we've created the first Wall Street quality performance analytics on Star. Well, great. So we can actually have objective, standardized, longitudinal performance analytics, standardized by company, by across time, and across companies. Now, that data and the Bell Mason diagnostic in particular, for those that are familiar, and I've got a gentleman that is intimately uh, knowledgeable and worked with the Bell Mason Diagnostic when he was a consultant with Diamond Technologies out of Chicago. They licensed the Bell Mason as their strategy consulting framework for their tech practice back in the late 90s, where VCs would fund a startup and then go have, say, look, at with some of our money we gave you, go hire Diamond to make sure your infrastructure and your operational milestones are correct. So they would implement the Bell Mason Diagnostic as an internal roadmap. 
Well, a gentleman that was a consultant there named Joel Littman, he left Diamond, which is now part of PwC, and he went over to Credit Suisse Holt. So he was intimately knowledgeable of that Holt model I used to manage one of the public markets and the Bell Mason diagnostic. And he, he can say very publicly with firsthand experience that tracking companies against the Bell Mason diagnostic gives you an equal level of insights on their operational performance as the Holt model did on public companies. Oh, that's great. So, so when you go down through, so tell me a little bit about it. We're coming up to the top of the show. And I don't oh, want to sorry. No, no, it's fine. I just want to make sure. So tell, you know, how can these startups, how can these entrepreneurs get involved with you and what are you looking for? Well, yeah, startups that need angel span. And I haven't worked with over 500 startups intimately. We've got a pretty good definition of when they need to hire us and, and who should hire us. Um, one is every startup that is three months from raising their first outside round, what I call stranger money, non-friends and family or founders money, three months before. That gets the rhythm of communication going. It builds an archive that really is supportive of their pitch deck and exec summary and stuff. So it really facilitates and accelerates funding process. But equally as important, it communicates to the outside world of potential investors their commitment to a fiduciary mindset of communication and corporate governance. It scares off the bullshitters, in other words. It scares off the Elizabeth Holmes. She would have never used AngelSpan. FTIS, yeah. Sam Bankman-Fried would have never used AngelSpan because they want to control the narrative because they want to be bullshitters. Yeah. So there's a there's great research on this link between proper voluntary transparency and eventual entrepreneurial success because it's a window in the psyche, the responsibility, the mindset of the CEO. So any startup, regardless of industry, three months before they're raising their first stranger round and we're optimized up to and through the B round. What we found over time is either not, if they're not bought by the B round, they typically hire CFO and this becomes a board level reporting function and the CFO oftentimes takes it over and it becomes a quarterly function by them, which is which is appropriate. So seed to B is our sweet spot. Um, now, again, I, I tend to describe companies more through the Bell Mason diagnostic definitions of their life cycle stage, not some arbitrarily labeled funding round, but for simplicity's sake, your first stranger round to that round where you're raising a meaningful chunk of money, staffing up and going to market with, with a sizable amount of capital war chest, because that's typically when you also bring a CFO in-house. What label that is, is somewhat arbitrary, but I, to simplify it, I say seed to be. No, it's great. So uh, closing thoughts and how do people get a hold of you, Joe? Joe at angelspan.com. Um, the website itself um, is really high level. We've got testimonials and explainer videos and research and all sorts of stuff. We we don't throw up on the on the website. It's just too much research that I find folks don't have the attention span for. Tons of uh, test eight pages and we quit writing them down. I mean, we, we solve... We accelerate funding, we elevate their brand image, the professionalism of the CEO in the eyes of their existing and potential investors. We can help fix bad investor relationships if you've got some squeaky wheels on your cap table already, because ultimately that's driven by their frustration with good information coming from the company. And those are the things that we saw. Now it's great. How do people get a hold of you? Joe at angelspan.com. I appreciate it. Joe, thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to join my show today. I really appreciate it. I know you're a busy guy. 
to all the audience out there, thank you for one, joining one more time. GSD presents Silicon Valley AI and Tech, and my name is Gary Fowler, and I'm your host. Stay tuned for another exciting edition coming up to you again next Tuesday. Stay happy, stay safe, and stay healthy. I'll be back at you soon. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, everybody, for taking your time. Bye-bye. Have a nice weekend. Bye-bye.